Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And it's a pleasure to welcome back top business consultant Greg Buston to our show. Greg advises leaders of the world's most admired companies on how to grow and maintain thriving businesses. And he says accountability is one of the most important factors leading to the success of a business. Greg has interviewed and surveyed thousands of business leaders to develop a set of leadership tools that will increase accountability and drive success in any organization. And he's the author of the book, Accountability, the Key to Driving a High-Performance Culture. Greg, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you, Jen and Laura. Delighted to be back. How do you define accountability? Well, my eighth grade English teacher would hate me for saying it because she would always say you can't use the root of a word when you're defining a word. And yet accountability comes from ancient Latin and it was a a money lending practice. And so the way that I define accountability is can I count on you? The difference between responsibility and accountability, and and I actually looked it up to make sure that I was getting it right. So responsibility means that you accept an obligation or a job or a task. Accountability is whether or not you fulfill your responsibility. And so with great responsibility, of course, comes great accountability. And you say accountability is one of the biggest challenges business leaders face. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think one reason, probably the biggest reason, I believe that wherever there is an accountability issue, uh, there is a lack of clarity. So either you have not been clear on what you want or you're not clear on what you want. You've not been clear in articulating expectations. The people on the receiving end aren't clear. And so I think one of the big reasons is because there's a lack of clarity. And I think that when there's a lack of clarity, then you get into all kinds of murkiness and and you end up getting into a blame game. There's a lot of emotion that ends up swirling around. You get a, that's not my job, or I thought you were going to do that, and, you know, or I didn't know. And so I think that all of those things conspire to make accountability harder than it really is or needs to be. How is purpose the first step to attaining accountability? Well, I think you've got to know what you want. I will tell you that since I wrote the book, one of the things that I've come to a revelation about, and I was just looking at it earlier, that I use this phrase, holding accountable, holding people accountable. I mean, just think about that. If you really stop and pause and listen, if you're going to have to hold someone to something, that's probably not very fun for you, and it's probably not very fun for them. It almost sounds like you're holding them hostage. And so I think that this whole purpose thing really gets driven by, well, what do I want and why am I doing it? Because one of the first steps in accountability is that if you're going to be 
in a position where you're coaching other people. And I think that if you're a leader, you are a coach. And so I think that accountability turns into coaching. It's more about coaching and it's less about scolding. Then I think that you need to understand what you stand for, what you're trying to achieve, and how all of this fits into what you want to get out of your life and what kind of a legacy you want to be. And I know that may sound like really highbrow or whatever, but I'm living proof that I struggled with accountability because I was not clear on on what I wanted. I was not clear on what I stood for. And as a result of that, I was willing to have some of those things shift around for some short-term success. And so I really came to this place. It was actually a conversation with my father when I was I was a fairly new business owner and we had had a lot of success and all of a sudden I'm not happy and it looks like we're being successful. And I asked my dad, you know, for some advice and he's like, do what you love with people you love at a place you love. And of course, I asked him about the money and he's like, well, the, the money will come. And for me, it has. And so I think for me, I had to get really straight with myself. I had to get really honest with myself that even to the outside world and on paper, it looked like we were being very successful and we were to a degree, but I wasn't really having a lot of fun and I didn't really feel like that I was living my full potential. And so I think this purpose thing does get a lot of currency these days. When I wrote the book five years ago, you know, I wondered whether people would think, man, this guy's gone soft or, okay, that's not really real world experience. But the more that I work with with teams and executives one-on-one, what I find is that people generally are good at the things that they like doing. And so that really plays a role in the whole accountability thing, because it means that it's that old story. If you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you've got that kind of a mindset, then accountability is really something that can be embraced and leveraged and is actually a really cool thing as opposed to thinking, oh, it's scolding, it's punishment, it's a bad thing. We don't want to talk about, you know, the A word and, you know, all of that. And I've really done a 180 on that over the last 10 or 12 years. And you found that high-performance organizations share what you've decided to call the seven pillars of accountability. Let's look at those. I know the acronym for the seven is CULTURE. So tell us what they are. Well, I went looking for a silver bullet. I thought there might be just, you know, that one thing because I, I really had struggled with it. I thought that I had been a pretty good at accountability. And then when the tech wreck occurred and some of our clients were purchased in, in mergers and we were on the outside looking in, all of a sudden this rocket ship that we were riding ran out of fuel. And I, and I discovered that I was not as good as I thought I was about it. And so I went to some of the world's most admired companies and I had opportunities to talk with senior leaders and then ultimately a lot of their team members and you ever have one of those, those, uh, I know you guys travel a lot. You ever have one of those epiphanies when you're, you know, at 36,000 feet, you might have, have a adult beverage in your hand. <laughs> and, I was, and, and I was like, I was looking at all these things that they said, and I just started playing with them. These characteristics came out. And so the, the very first one is character, which is closely related to purpose. And, and it's another way to describe our values. And that became 
the first pillar, and then everything else really just sort of took care of itself. And I was actually able to devise a proprietary accountability assessment based on all these best practices that I had discerned from talking with all these successful executives at these successful companies. So that's where it came from. And I think the most important thing for your listeners is that when you think of the culture acronym and you think of character, unity, learning, tracking, urgency, reputation, and evolving, those are the traits or the system, if you will, or the culture, which happens to be what those initial letters in those each of those seven words spells out. We love having you as part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. We know a lot of you want to be your own boss or already operate your own business. That's why we want you to know about Shopify. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Hear that? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes reality. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform that's revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sale channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you're covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. Once you start selling, Shopify makes getting paid simple by instantly accepting every type of payment. Running a growing business means getting the insights you need wherever you are. With Shopify's single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's in Brooklyn, and, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash nobody, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash nobody to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash nobody. Can you give us an example of a company that you think is really getting it right in regards to the seven pillars? Well, I'll tell you, I think certainly the companies that I interviewed, Nucor Steel, Southwest Airlines, Marriott. I was going to say Marriott. I mean, mean, those guys, they do it. And here's the thing. It's it is hard. It, It is really difficult to, you know, maintain that high level of performance. Of course, you know, and and the bigger that you get and all of that. But I just I think, you know, year in, year out, those companies show up on the top performing companies of Fortune magazine, which is actually how I picked them. I mean, they've got nine criteria. I I think, I mean, four or five of them are things like people management and innovation and social responsibility and competitiveness and, and things like that. And it's like, man, you know, when you look at those eight or nine criteria, 
And those companies are showing up year after year. What that demonstrates is that they're not only successful in their peer class, they are actually outperforming themselves. I mean, they set a very high bar and year after year, they know the expectations are high and they do everything they can to sustain that performance. But let's take something in the hospitality industry. Let's say Marriott and Hilton. What are they doing differently? Why is Marriott more successful? Well, I think what Marriott does is they have got just a relentless focus on who they are and their values. I mean, it all started with the Marriott family, and they just created a very high level of service for sure. But the thing that they also did, or I should say not but, but and the thing that they always did, it was all calibrated around their core values. And I think that's one of the things that these companies have in common. They are very clear about who they are, what the rules of engagement are, and how those values show up on a day-to-day basis. So whether, and I travel a lot, And so, I mean, one of the things that I look at is, you know, how am I welcome back? Do they know me? I mean, even when I go into a hotel for the first time, I mean, they're always pleasant, you know, and maybe it's because I've got the, you know, the platinum thing and and all of that. But I think that that they show that level of, of courtesy and care for all of their travels. And then and then I think another thing which I really look at because. I'm a recovering strategist, right? So I I would be paid for ideas, and yet ideas are cheap. It's the execution. And I think that one of the things that Marriott does so well is that they are able to execute across all of their brands all over the world. And And I'll give you an example. So, I mean, we all know that if we want to reduce water consumption and detergent use, so what do we do? We hang our towel up on the back of the shower, on our bathroom door. And yet I can't tell you how many times it, when I have to stay at other hotels, that's a great strategy, but I come in and I have done that, but my towel is replaced, mm-hmm. which says they've got the right strategy, but they are falling down from an execution standpoint. And I think that that's one of the things that Marriott does so well with the Ritz-Carlton brand. They have, they have morning huddles. And they talk about, hey, what happened the day before? This is what we stand for. What's coming up on the day ahead? And there's a high level of communication that is involved to make sure that people understand how what they are doing aligns with the company's overall mission and vision. Yeah, one of the things you say in your book, Accountability, you say it's almost impossible to over-communicate. And I found that fascinating. In what way? fascinating. Well, it's just about that. It seems like a simple thing that communication should be an obvious thing. And and I think that your thought is really a good one to consider that you can't you can't over communicate. Well, I I may be a little biased because I come out of a communications background. But my belief is that the point at which you're sick of saying it is about the point at which most people are getting it. And I think that it's up to the leader, because if a leader is really doing what she or he needs to be doing, that means that you're out three to six months ahead of your team thinking about and scanning the horizon for things. And so you'll be thinking about decisions that you need to make maybe three to four to five months out on some of these decisions. And so you announce your decision And because you've been thinking about it for so long, there's this tendency to believe, well, how come everybody didn't get it? Well, Mm -hmm. it's it's because you were thinking about it 24-7 for six months, 
and they're only hearing it for the first time. Yeah. And when I talked to Kip Tyndall, who's one of the founders of the Container Store, I mean, one of the things that he said, and you may have seen this, is, is we think that communication and leadership are the same thing. And that if you're going to be a leader, it's up to you to, to be a communicator. And I, and I think in, in this day, what, what people are really looking for and what companies have to decide what leaders at these companies need to decide is how far are we willing to take transparency? What does that really look like? What does that really mean? Because once you put something out there, then you're obligated to, to keep it out there because as soon as you pull something back, people are going to make up their stories and the stories are going to be bad. And so one of the ways that you drive accountability, in, in my view, and in, in why I have this mantra that, that clarity creates confidence one of the ways that you get that is by open and honest communication. You are willing to bring up and talk about the tough stuff that's not working. And so that, again, really feeds into the, the purpose and trust thing that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Because what I look at when I'm working with, with management teams, I look at how the management team handles conflict. Because that, to me, conflict, if it's healthy, if it's done right, it means that we're talking about the meaty issues that we need to be talking about so that we can go fix them. And so that's another form of communication, and it's also wedded to this notion of trust, because I may not bring it up if I don't, tr if I don't trust you. And so all this stuff really just, it really just weaves together. And going along with that, something that I love that you said in the book was that bad news doesn't improve with age. And so you shouldn't delay discussing performance issues. What are some of the best ways you can think of to tell your team some bad news and to criticize them, but also give them some positive feedback at the same time? Well, I think you heard me say that if you're a leader, you're a coach. And uh -huh. so I think that when people hear the word criticize, they probably, because we've been conditioned that way, to think that, okay, well, that means it's going to be bad as opposed to the fact that it, it could be constructive mm -hmm. and, and helpful. And so I, I think that when I say bad news doesn't get better with age, it's like any other coaching opportunity. It's like the time to have that conversation is probably within 48 hours. I mean, if you're a bit of a hothead like I can be, then maybe you need to take a breath and say, okay, I'm going to calm down a little bit. But the time to have the coaching conversation, whether it's for a missed opportunity or underperformance or a mistake, or whether it's an opportunity to point out something that someone has done really well, is more or less in the moment. And so the things that I have learned over time and the work that I do, because I do a lot of, a lot of executive coaching as well, is that if you're a coach, I believe that it's your job to bring out the person's full potential. And one of the best ways of doing that is by asking questions that are genuine and come from a place of care. Because I think if a person trusts a boss or a peer and respects that person, they're going to receive that coaching. They're going to hear those questions differently if they don't think the person's got some hidden agenda that, oh, you're just asking me because you're going to do this to embarrass me or to, or to blame me or put me down or to use this to get an edge on me to get ahead. And so when I look at teams, I think that one of the, the most powerful forms of accountability is peer-to-peer -peer accountability because in the workshops that I do around the, the world, I ask people to think about a time when they were on a high-performing team, and what, what did that look like? What were you trying to accomplish? 
and just jot down three or four words that you would associate with that. And I said, you can pick any team you want. You can pick a current team or you can pick a team as far back as you like. And what's amazing to me is that workshop after workshop, keynote after keynote, when people share with me, more than half of the audience picks examples that are 10 or 15 or 20 years old. Huh. And I'm just and I'm just blown away by that. I said, there ought to be a logical question that you're asking right now, which is how come you didn't use your current team? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the way, back to your question, I think that the way that you can deliver this is first of all, if people say, look, we've got a clear common goal, so we've got that in common. We understand the roles that we are playing, so that's that's a cool thing. We understand deadlines. We trust and respect one another. We're having some fun around here, and I think that when you've got those characteristics as part of a high-performing team, it's a lot easier to give and receive feedback because people feel like, hey, we're all in this together. I trust and respect you as opposed to, wow, I'm not really sure about this person's motives, or you know, they may be asking me questions, but are they asking questions to trap me, mm-hmm. or do they already think they know the answer? And my view of this is, is that you ought to be asking because you're trying to get an understanding so that you can help the person perform at a higher level. And Greg, I know you urge organizations to ask themselves, what was the best decision we made last year? And what was the worst decision we made last year? Tell us more about what goes into that thinking. Well, I do a lot of strategic planning work with companies. In fact, I'm doing about one a week between now and Christmas. And one of the things that I really am am eager to hear about is, and and it's a variation of of those questions, is what's working, what's, what's not working. Because the reason that I want people to ask those questions is because invariably patterns emerge. Right. I mean, it's like you ask five people what's not working and they tell you if if they believe that you're asking for, you know, noble reasons, let's say they will tell you the truth. And what I find is that I, I can talk to five people out of seven on a management team and they have told me pretty much the same thing. And so asking those questions is a powerful way to say, look, I asked. This is what I heard. So this is a problem that we need to dig into. It's either a real problem that we've got to go fix, or it's a communication problem because it's not really a problem except that people think it's a problem. And so what you're trying to do in any kind of a planning session is you're trying to change. You're trying to do more of what's working, and that's why you would ask, you know, hey, what's the best decision we made? Okay, well, what was around that? What did we learn from that? How can we replicate that? Right? How can we do a better job communicating that throughout the enterprise? And conversely, when we have a decision that didn't turn out the right way, I mean, most of the time, I mean, I'd like to say all of the time, you never make a bad decision intentionally. Mm -hmm. So what were the circumstances? Again, what did we learn? If we had it to do over again, what would we do? And I think those kinds of conversations, they should be intellectually stimulating, and they are the kinds of questions that get people focused on issues rather than on people. Let's go fix the issue. And then, yeah, there may be a people problem related with that, but let's look at the root cause and see what's really causing the success or the underperformance of an issue. So I just, I think that asking those kinds of questions is helpful. A third question that I ask is, if you were in charge, what would you be doing that's not being done right now, which gets people into problem-solving mode, which is another different 
better way of attacking problems. And I know we talked about this on the the last time I was on the show. I was about four weeks away from headed over to the UK. And when I was over there, one of the questions that I heard from one of the executives is we ask our people, what should we know that we don't know? (laughs) So I I think that all these kinds of questions that we can ask cause people to think, okay, this is a safe place. We can talk about the things that we need to talk about. And when we are talking about the things that we need to talk about, then we can build in the accountability mechanisms to make more good things happen or to fix the problems that are slowing us down. I mean, you asked about, you know, how do you do, how do you approach a coaching conversation? I mean, my view of it is when you see it, you say it, right? It doesn't get Mm -hmm. better with age. Mm -hmm. When you see it, say it. When you say it, solve it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's one thing to talk about it. But if these conversations are going in circles, then we haven't really maximized the conversation. How did this happen? How can we prevent it or how can we replicate it? All those kinds of things. And then ultimately is do it. So see it, say it, solve it, do it. And, and that really becomes a cool little accountability formula. And something else that I really took from the book is the importance of values and finding out what you're or not finding out, just defining what your own values are as a company and trying to make sure that your employees are hired for their values and not their skills. Is that pretty much the root cause of a lot of the issues at companies that you see? Well, I think that if we did, it is, yes. (laughs) Yes, this is what I would say. I think that one of the great paradoxes that I see is that we have values that we don't treat as valuable. Okay, interesting. So we say these things, these things are called values because they they are valuable to us. They define how we are going to behave. And yet repeatedly what, what happens is that there is a violation of these values. So one of the things that I do in the workshops that I deliver is I ask everybody, I said, I just want you to write down an underperformance issue and I want you to write down whoever, you know, is responsible for that issue. And so they do. And then I, and so I, you know, write down some of the things that are going on or not happening or whatever. And they, they make a list And then a little bit later on, I'll say, hey, I'd like you to just very quickly, this is just for you. I'm not going to make you share this. I just want you to jot down your company's core values or principles or beliefs, whatever whatever you want to call them. And I mean, I kid you not, I did this last week. There were three executives from the same company. They're all looking at each other. It's like, how many did you get? They can't remember. And I'm like, guys, if you can't remember them, then the rest of your organization is not going to be able to remember them. But that's only Uh one of the takeaways. The other takeaway is look at what when you finally get, you know, when you're finally able to come up with the three or four or five values that you have and you've got them written down on a page. Now I'd like you to turn back and look at what you wrote on about the underperformance issue. And everybody, there's all these expressions that go from disgust to laughing to, yeah, you got me. Because what you're seeing is that what they wrote in their values on one page and what's happening in the behavior where people are underperforming on the other page is in stark contrast. It's a 180. And so people have these values that they don't treat as valuable. And so one of the ways that I say is is a better way to approach a coaching conversation is just to line up the values and ask the person to describe the situation and then have a conversation around where the gaps are occurring. When we have values that say things like, okay, you know, to be excellent or, you know, get her done or whatever people say. And then you look at this on this other page where the things aren't getting done. 
that's where the coaching can really start because you're saying, look, you know, we need to make sure that we all understand what these words mean and what the behaviors associated with these words mean so we can use that as a coaching opportunity not to scold people but to help them understand where they're falling short or how they need to improve. You know, you talk in the book about change and you point out that change is necessary in a lot of cases, but it's difficult. Why is it difficult for many people? Well, I think it's difficult for all of us. It's like, hey, let's change. You go first, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'll follow. I, 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 yeah. I think whenever we are changing, we are giving up something. We're giving up security or certainty or power or prestige or the comfort that I've got this covered and I know how to do this. And so usually we're giving up something in return for a promise of something better as opposed to, well, can't we just work a little bit harder doing it the way that we're currently doing? And I think that that's one of the reasons. And so, you know, so most change programs and, you know, the chapter with Steve Dalton of Sony in the UK was really to create a lot of short-term victories so that people could see that the changes that were occurring were taking them to a better place. And of course, the other thing that Steve did with his team in Wales was to involve them in the change. People will support something they've had a hand in in developing. And so these are the things that we can do to help people get comfortable with change as well as helping them understand the reasons we need to change. And as you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we've asked you this before. What is your nobody told me lesson? So what do you wish somebody had told you about accountability for the sake of this episode that you wish somebody had? Nobody nobody told me that accountability is a support system for winners. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Explain that some more. Well, it's, look, the people who don't like accountability are the losers. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. The people on your team, the high performers, they love accountability. They embrace accountability. They want to be accountable. And so it really is about creating more visibility so that we can coach the people who are, are not performing at the level that they need to be. Because that means any number of things. It means we haven't been clear about communicating expectations. It may be that we haven't been clear in giving them enough resources in terms of training or time. It may be that the people are overwhelmed or whatever, or it may be that we put them in a role that made it hard for them to be successful. And so, again, our job is to be a coach, and so accountability is really, it should not be viewed as punishment. It should be viewed as a way of supporting, creating a support system with a lot of clarity around values, using tracking to do the heavy lifting of accountability so it's more empirical, and just helping everybody understand the role that they play in helping us get to where we all want want to go. So I think, as I said, I've done a 180 on accountability. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's not something to be feared unless it's, it's used as a stick. But when it's used the right way, in a positive way, in a helpful coaching way, then I think that it, it creates an opportunity to put people in the right positions to be successful. And, and some of the tools that I outline in the book 
provide some insight into how to create those systems so that you can measure people's performance in a way that is fulfilling to them and helpful to the organization. Greg, we thank you so much for joining us again. This has been a pleasure. Jan and Laura, thank you again for having me back. It's been great. Yeah, you're always so enlightening. We really appreciate it. Our thanks to our guest, Greg Buston, the author of Accountability, the Key to Driving a High-Performance Culture. Greg's latest book, by the way, is called How Leaders Decide, A Timeless Guide to Making Tough Choices. His website is buston.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 